HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. As the hospitality in general rebuilds itself and, you know, looks for tourism to come back to Boston, because that's, that's very, very popular here. What we would like to see, and, you know, hopefully I, I speak for others, we would like to see marketing of black businesses um, at a city level where tourists come in, we would like to be, you know, at the table of marketing our businesses to people coming in from across the country and across the world. We would like to see some loans come to us with a rate that's affordable and commensurate with, you know, how we can pay the loans back. We would like to see some grants. Uh, we have seen in this country organizations and companies and airlines and banks just bailed out right and left. You know, we would like to see some type of financial program that supports black businesses getting a little bit stronger. And it's not about a handout. It's not about a give me. It's about some equitable funds that can be used to strengthen and grow our businesses. That's Cheryl Strotter the owner of Soleil Restaurant and Catering Company in Boston. She's also a member of the Boston Black Hospitality Coalition, which is organizing to preserve the few Black-owned gathering spaces in the city. COVID-19 has affected Black business owners differently in many cases from their white counterparts. Not only are they losing revenue because of the virus, but long-standing issues like discriminatory lending practices and undercapitalization have made financial relief harder to come by. 
This week, we look to leaders in the food world who are working to build a more inclusive industry. From farmland to 4th of July barbecues, a brewery and an app, we're exploring how to correct historical narratives, connect consumers with Black-owned businesses in their neighborhoods, and build coalitions across the food world. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. For our first story, Will Hartman revisits an interview from HRN series Tech Bites with the founders of Eat Okra, an app that highlights and maps Black-owned restaurants across the United States. In 2020, consumers are placing an unforeseen emphasis on aligning their spending with their values. Efforts to support local business, prop up communities that have been historically damaged, and keep money away from the hands of large corporations has opened up new forums for information to be spread. Eat Okra is an app that helps eaters find Black-owned restaurants. While Eat Okra has been on the App Store since 2017, it has gained a following in the past few months. Co-founder Anthony Edwards Jr. shares his inspiration for creating Eat Okra. We knew a lot of Black-owned restaurants, but we wanted to find like different ones, and maybe some closer to where we were in Brooklyn, because the ones we knew were mostly in Harlem. So we went online, we found a bunch of them, and um, you know, we thought about it like, there should be an app for this, something that we can quickly pick up our phone, search soul food, and have a whole listings come up. And that didn't exist. And so we decided like this would be a great concept that we should run with and just see how the community accepts it. Justin Johnson, the main designer and engineer of Edokra, shared a few thoughts on why their app creates an important space for conversation regarding why the background of a restaurant, who the chefs are, who owns it, and how the food is sourced, etc., will be a necessary feature for other apps in order to satisfy consumer concerns about how they spend their money. In the app where they can actually um, specify those things and find restaurants that are, are doing and supporting those things, I think, I think that's something that people would want to know because it, it plays into the convenience of just, all right, I don't have to think about this too hard. I can check off this category, and then I know that I'm being responsible about where I'm spending my money. For Eat Okra, it's not just black people that are looking to support um, black-owned businesses. I think it's uh, also people that realize that they're coming to a community and changing how it works uh, the, culturally, uh, what the demographics are. And instead of feeling like they're separate from it, they want to be a part of it. And I think a part of that is looking for, um, I guess, ethnically specific own restaurants to whatever the makeup is of that community to know that they're actually supporting it and not taking away from that community as well. According to their website, Eat Okra has now grown to include over 2,600 restaurants for their 150,000 users. While there are many services that showcase specific restaurants in one city, Eat Okra is a centralized location which covers many of America's large cities. Small business, and especially Black-owned small business, are in jeopardy. Apps like Eat Okra are an excellent step in giving consumers more information for how they spend their money. Download Eat Okra from the App Store or Google Play Store and find out more from their website, eatokra.com. The Eat Okra team actually went back on Tech Bytes recently. You can find episode 210 of Tech Bytes wherever you get your podcasts. 
Next, Tosh Kimmel speaks with food scholar Adrian Miller about the history of American barbecue. In the wake of George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police, the country has experienced a reckoning unparalleled in recent memory. Though Floyd's death rocked the nation, he is neither the first nor the last to die as a result of reckless and violent policing. Kentucky-based barbecue chef David McAdee, who was shot by the National Guard in Louisville earlier last month, was one of the most recent to be added to an ever-growing list of losses. As a slain black man, McAdee is a reflection of our country's reign of racial terror. As a pitmaster who fed his community, He's an embodiment of the communal and joyous nature of the food he loved, barbecue. The racial climate which set the stage for McAdee's death was the same one that birthed modern barbecue so many centuries ago. And as we move through this great reckoning, we must acknowledge that the erasure of the intrinsically black and indigenous parts of our history extends even into the foods we eat as Americans. Well, what we know as barbecue today is really Native American in origin. And so uh, barbecue is really taking those Native American smoking traditions and melding them with the faster meat cooking traditions of Europe to create this kind of hybrid new fusion cuisine. And then um, barbecue in its earliest form is very labor intensive. So uh, in the antebellum South, if you had a lot of labor intensive work, you made African-Americans do it. That's Adrian Miller. James Beard, award-winning author, soul food scholar, and certified barbecue judge. In the 1800s, it was really cooking whole animals. And it it wasn't just pork. I mean, African-Americans would cook sheep, cows, goats, possum. I mean, a lot of stuff could show up on the barbecue grill or the pit. And so enslaved African-Americans became the primary cooks for barbecue. And that momentum carried past emancipation, really well into the 20th century. Barbecue is a national pastime, and the closest thing we have to traditional American food. Yet despite the apparent reverence for this fundamentally Black cuisine, the conversation is often centered around its place as a fixture in white suburbia. The glossing over of barbecue's deep roots in African-American culture not only does a disservice to the original pitmasters, but also diminishes the subjugation they faced while developing America's favorite food. It's a history that you just don't hear um, because, you know, I think there's a general sense of the role that barbecue played in our society and that it's a summer food and it was for a lot of fun events. But I don't think people really know how it, the different permutations of it culturally. Barbecue um, in its earliest form was really whole animal cooking. And so when you cook a whole animal, that kind of cooking creates community because you just have a lot of food that needs to be served. So um, whenever somebody decided to barbecue, it usually was for a large gathering, not so much just a, you know, a family union of four, um, because back in those days, you didn't have refrigeration or anything. So you really had to eat all the food that you cooked. So barbecue gets associated with large civic celebrations, like large political campaigns, with church revivals in the outdoors all of these kind of big festivals. So there was a certain culture that was created with those events as well. Despite having been developed in the shadow of slavery, barbecues were often highly anticipated, as the long cooking time and extensive prep meant a reprieve from the everyday backbreaking work of field labor. While one might expect African Americans to reject something with such deep roots in their oppression, the Black community has instead turned barbecue into a symbol of ingenuity. Looking at oral histories of enslaved people, you never got a sense that there was any negative association with barbecue. 
um, that in, in that even in that horrible context of slavery, barbecue is celebratory in nature, but at the same time, it had a, a lot of other uh, important uh, aspects in Black culture. So it was celebration about building community, but it was also about political activism. It, you know, there's so there's just all kinds, and then it's, it's about protest as well, because you have stories of African American barbecuers. Uh, feeding Union Army soldiers, um, feeding civil rights protesters, all kinds of all kinds of things. To um, step away from that culture is really ignoring a rich history that leads to emancipation barbecues as a as a distinct thing, black political barbecues, uh, and in fact, if you look at some of the early kind of slave revolts, a lot of times these things were planned over barbecue. And so much so that there were actually parts of the country that outlawed African-Americans having barbecue because they were afraid that that coming together was going to lead to a revolt. Barbecue is in so many ways a reflection of Black history, but this history has been ignored. Even as I researched for this story, I found that so many of the biggest names in barbecue are white. And while it's not wrong for white people to partake in barbecue or to appreciate it as a cuisine, it's important to acknowledge its origins. This way of cooking was built like all of America, on the backs of enslaved people, and now more than ever we must acknowledge that. As food media is now being confronted with its own racial inequalities, the spotlight is on those outlets to correct the whitewashed food narratives they've helped to perpetuate. You don't see many African-American barbecuers getting love, and I think that's just messed up. There's definitely been a whitewashing of it, and part of it is... um, you know, the people who decide what stories get told tend not to be diverse. And when they're looking for stories, they tend to tap their networks, which aren't diverse. So you usually have an echo chamber of where you have white people talking to other white people to find these stories. As many of us partake in Fourth of July barbecues this weekend, a holiday which in itself ignores black subjugation, it's important to remember the roots of this food way not just as an American cuisine, but as an intrinsically Black and Indigenous one. This year, perhaps we can think back to the original pitmasters and honor their legacy as we eat the food they created. Barbecue is e- it's evolving, it's elastic, um, but throughout all those twists and turns and changes, African Americans have still held their own as um, highly regarded barbecuers. To learn more about the origins of barbecue, Visit Adrian Miller's website, adrianemiller.com, or follow him on Instagram at soulfoodscholar. We'll be right back with more Meat and Three. This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner, Mary Izette, created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the taproom. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model. The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time. 
If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com slash go slash meet. That's square.com slash go slash M-E-A-T. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, Bryce Bayeke takes us to San Antonio, Texas, where a local beer maker has created a collaboration with breweries across the globe in the name of racial equity. While many have taken to the streets to protest police brutality and to support black lives, some, like Marcus Baskerville, have shown their support in different ways. When the owner of the Weathered Souls Brewery in San Antonio, Texas, wanted to represent people of color in his city, he began to brew. In the span of 24 hours, he developed the recipe for a stout and organized what would become a worldwide collaboration that shared the stout's name. He called the beer Black is Beautiful, a name that harkens back to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. I was trying to figure out how I could help my local community and help other people of color with using my platform and my brewery. Baskerville created the Black is Beautiful Stout as an open-source recipe that other brewers can riff on and to create their own unique beers, so long as they donate all of the proceeds to local charities. Basically, I, I created a canvas for breweries to go and uh, use their paintbrushes and come up with the best version of a stout they can, and then basically hoping that breweries start getting as creative as they can uh, with the processes so we can start seeing some different variations of the spear. So um, we're asking that 100% of all of those proceeds are then donated to a local charity, foundation, organization that supports police brutality reform and legal funds. Originally, we thought maybe 150, 200 breweries would go ahead and get that get involved. In just four weeks, over 900 breweries from all 50 states and 13 other nations have joined his call to support police reform and racial equality, one beer at a time. I mean, it's pretty dope that everybody's uh, coming together for this. But now the beer isn't just the overall aspect of it, right? Because if you're just brewing the beer and then that's it, you know, that's not really creating change. That's just the first step towards that creating of change. So what the main goal of this is, is basically for these breweries to have that open dialogue with the organizations, foundations or entities that they go ahead and get involved in. And then also create a openness with the community as well, because obviously your local community is going to see you getting involved with this initiative. So the goal is from there to create conversation, to create some trust amongst the community so then also breweries can go ahead and start implementing things for equality with inside of the brewery. 
Baskerville's initiative is part of a growing trend in the beer world. New York's other half brewery launched the Altogether project earlier this year to raise money for the hospitality industry during the pandemic. For the future, though, Baskerville hopes to get 1,000 breweries participating in the Black is Beautiful collaboration. I'm also thinking that as this initiative goes, because of how important this initiative is, how important quality is at this point, um, we're going to start seeing some other businesses, entities, and other industries get involved as well. The Black is Beautiful thing uh, doesn't just have to be limited to beer. It can expand across any industry. To see which breweries are producing their version of Black is Beautiful, and to support or join the collaboration, go to their website, blackisbeautiful.beer. For our final story this week, we turn to part of our food system that has a long way to go to become truly equitable, our farmland. In 2014, the USDA reported a 9% increase in black farming in the Census of Agriculture. This was promising news. Unfortunately, though, it wasn't so. A two-year investigation by the counter revealed that day-to-day discrimination by the USDA for over a century had resulted in staggering losses of land, of livelihood, and of economic stability for Black farmers. Leah Penniman is a food justice advocate and farm activism educator. She's the co-founder of Soulfire Farm, author of Farming While Black, and an HRN Hall of Fame inductee. She spoke about our nation's history of systemic racism and discrimination on farms in episode 91 of Inside Julia's Kitchen. So it's actually a heartbreaking story in terms of the land theft and disparity in this country, that 98% of the rural land in this country is white owned, which is a higher percentage than ever. Uh, You know, farming, meaning being a farm manager is the whitest profession, whereas being a farm laborer is the brownest profession in the United States. So we have a a super racially skewed industry, and it's not an accident of history. You know, of course, the original theft was the genocidal seizure seizure of land from indigenous people. Um, But that wasn't the only theft of land. You know, after... The Emancipation Proclamation, 1865, there was a promise made by the Union Army to formerly enslaved Africans that they would be able to have 40 acres and a mule, a very famous saying. But that was a broken promise. That land was never given. And in fact, reparations were given to the former slave masters, but not to the people who had toiled uh, for no pay uh, and and in bonds. So the only way that Black folks were able to get land uh, was to save up money for generations, you know, even though they were sharecroppers, Many of them were uh, incarcerated and, and forced back onto the land as convict leases, right? But but by 1910, they they purchased almost 16 million acres of land, which is a significant accomplishment. And almost all of that is gone. The backlash by white supremacists was really swift and severe. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, the White Caps, the White Citizens Council did not want to see black people owning land. And so they burned crosses, they burned down houses, they shot at people, and they, they literally stole their deeds. So that was the major push factor for the Great Migration, right? The second big reason, and, and probably the most significant in terms of acreage, was that the federal government themselves discriminated against black farmers in terms of giving out loans, crop assistance, and technical assistance. So while the white farmers were getting all of these subsidies from the federal government, the black farmers were getting turned away. And, you know, you amplify that over generations and you see why the foreclosures happened. And and that's why black farmers only have about 1% uh, of the farmland today. To learn more about Leah Penniman's work uprooting racism in the food system, visit soulfirefarm.org. 
And for further reading on how the USDA distorted data to conceal discrimination against Black farmers, visit the link in our show notes for the counter's full investigation. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Will Hartman, Tosh Kimmel, and Bryce Baiecki. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production this week by McGill Webb. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>